for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we pour some cold water on the so-called 8 times 8 rule, saying you need to drink 8 glasses of H2O a day. Turns out that very much depends. On the eve of the anniversary of the Montreal Massacre, we meet the brother of one of the 14 women killed on December 6, 1989 at the École Polytechnique in Montreal to remember the lives lost and the legacy of that day. And we ask, just how effective has gun control legislation become in this country since that attack? And whether or not the federal Liberals' new Bill C-21 casts too wide a net. But first, food prices will continue to rise in 2023, at least for the first six months. That, according to the latest Canada Food Price Report released Monday, it forecasts increases of another 5 to 7% on average next year, adding hundreds of dollars to the average family's annual expenses. But... There is some relief on the horizon. First off, though, something that isn't so funny, uh, food prices continue to climb or will continue to climb next year, not by the numbers we've seen so far this year, but uh, the cost of groceries is expected to continue rising in 2023. A new report suggests the latest Canada Food Price Report released today estimates that prices will be up by another 5 to 7% on average next year. That adds hundreds of dollars to the average family's annual expenses, the annual, uh, a couple's annual expenses, you name it, they go up. Um, It has been stubbornly high now for months and months and months on end. And this all comes as grocery executives faced a commons committee today. The Agricultural Committee is looking into high food prices, what's causing them. They dispute any accusations that grocery giants are taking advantage of all this inflation to drive up their own profits. Loblaw Senior VP of Retail Finance, Jodat Hussein, told MPs on the committee that food prices have been rising because of higher costs incurred by suppliers. As worldwide inputs of key commodities like sugar, flour, oil and labor fuel have risen substantially, our suppliers have faced real pressures. Therefore, many cost increases have been substantiated, approved, and reflected in our shelf prices. We are dependent on what suppliers charge us when we set our retail prices. Fundamentally, grocery prices are up because the costs of products that grocers buy from suppliers have gone up. Well, joining me now with more of this is Simon Samoji. He's the Aral Chair in the Business of Food at the University of Guelph. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. This uh, doesn't come as a huge surprise, but I, I imagine consumers who are hoping for maybe a bit of relief in 2023 are going to be disappointed. Uh, what are we seeing? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're predicting a 5 to 7% increase in Canadian food prices for 2023. So for a, a typical family of four, it means a, a food expenditure of $16,288, up up $1,065 from 2022, which is really the largest increase in the 13 years of of our food price report. And and really, we've seen the highest food prices over 40 years. So this isn't great news. No. Uh, And what's driving it now? Because we get the sense that things are stabilizing a bit across the board, whether it be energy prices and so on, that things are sort of, or, or even supply chain issues are kind of fixing themselves a little bit. Why are food prices continuing to rise at such a steady rate? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. So, the general rate of inflation is six point nine percent, which is which is relatively high. Uh, but but food prices for the last twelve months have gone up uh, over six point nine percent. They're at about ten point three percent. So there's about a four percent 
a difference. And there's a few reasons for that. Obviously, general inflation is an impact, but the the war in Ukraine has had a significant impact on food prices. Uh, it, it inflated fuel prices, which impacted food logistics costs. Ukraine and Russia produce about 25% of the world's wheat. So that pushed up grain and animal feed prices. And they also produce a lot of fertilizer as well. So the war in Ukraine is one. Secondly, a lot of uh, drought conditions and bacterial contamination issues in the Western USA, particularly in California. And we get a a lot of our uh, vegetables uh, from there, particularly uh, leafy green vegetables like lettuce, which have uh, spiked quite high. And lastly, We've seen the Canadian dollar fall against the US dollar. At the start of this year, it was about 80 US cents to the Canadian, and now it's about 74 cents. Uh, It was 71 cents a few months ago. So that's not good for importing. So yeah, the war in Ukraine, issues on the West Coast of the USA with climate and the dollar are, are coming together to push food price inflation higher than general inflation. And I guess those are all things that, uh, clearly that continue, right? While other things are are fixed. So a bit of a perfect storm after another perfect storm to some extent. Hmm. Where do you see, I mean, it's right across the board, isn't it? From fruits and vegetables to meat, to bread, everything. I think for most categories, we're predicting a sort of a five to 7% range, particularly for bakery, dairy, uh, meat. The biggest increase we think we're going to see is in vegetables with a, a 6 to 8% increase. And and we are particularly in winter heavily reliant on the US for, for vegetables. And uh, we see that constriction in supply that's coming from drought and other bacterial issues uh, pushing that up. It's a situation that's not great. Looking forward, I think most of the increases that we will see going into 2023 will be in the first six months of the year. We're seeing central banks around the world try to push down inflation. We're seeing food supply chains starting to stabilize. So we actually think that we're going to see some spikes in prices for the first six months. And then towards the middle of the year and the end, we could even see prices decrease a little bit. So a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel at long last. But between now and then, though, I I was noticing in the report that stuff like seafood, meat, things that were already jumping at price uh, will continue to do so. Yeah, meat's an interesting one. We we saw massive increases in meat prices in 2000 and 2021, particularly when there were outages at uh, meat processing facilities in Canada because they had COVID uh, contamination issues. And the last six months, the, the increase has been lower than inflation for those items. I think going into 2023, it'll be similar to the other price categories in that we will see the price spike a little bit. But then I expect that over the coming months, uh, particularly once the Canadian season comes online uh, between in, in the summer and into fall, that we will see some decreases. It's interesting to note as well that uh, while eating out at restaurants continues to be pricey, uh, the rise in prices at restaurants and dining out continues to lag a bit behind food inflation uh, for the rest of us purchasing food. Yeah, it's interesting. We're, we're predicting a 4 to 6% increase. And I, and I think for restaurants, which have been hysterically high, I think restaurants have shifted the way that they operate significantly in the last three years. They've had to operate with with less labor. They've had to shrink menus uh, significantly. Uh, so they're, they're, they've become quite savvy in some ways of being able to uh, cut costs without cutting too many corners. Uh, so we do see that we, we might be a little bit better off at the restaurant end of things. 
as you said, the re- restaurant food is the most expensive food you can buy. Uh, it, it's better to cook what you have or can get from a grocery store. It's a lot more, it's a lot more expensive to eat out. Uh, but we, we do see a little bit less of an increase for restaurants. Uh, Simon, you referred to something as sort of the era of the smart shopper. What uh, I, I guess a lot of us are getting savvier at the grocery store out of sheer necessity. Yeah, I, I think we all recognize that everything in our lives is going up in cost, you know, housing, uh, our bills, and, and obviously food. This is the first time for many generations that they're really having to face uh, skyrocketing uh, food prices. And typically, if you look back in the last 100 years, you know, food price spikes like this only really happened during periods of war or, or famine or other types of conflicts. Uh, so generations past have had to live through that and have some experience with that. But yeah, it's we really are, as mentioned, in the, era, the era of the smart shopper. And that means Thankfully, due to the internet, you can make that process a little bit easier. So obviously, we get for many people, you get flyers in in your mail, and uh, you see the specials. So, and you can also do that online. And there's a lot of food recovery apps and other ways of get of filtering uh, low food prices in a digital form. So people are, uh, you know, they're buying up when there are specials on food, uh, looking to freeze food uh, and obviously what they don't eat. And so, you know, in- investing in a chest freezer even, if, particularly for those high cost items that might be on special, particularly uh, the meats, uh, you know, don't, not going to the store when you're, you're hungry, having, having a list and uh, sticking to that shopping list and, you know, only buying what you need and, you know, not wasting and looking around the grocery store, there are ways to be smart about how you shop and you can substitute uh, fresh products for frozen, uh, for particularly for fruits, vegetables, even meat. And if you look at, you know, the, the broccoli, the, the corn, the carrots, uh, different types of berries, different types of fish and even meat, those products uh, are just as good for you, uh, but they're typically lower in price. It comes down to, as you said, stretching that dollar for further, being savvy, doing your research before going to the store. So, yeah, we already are in the area of the smart shopper. Yeah, running in and throwing everything into the basket, running out, um, it's, it's probably done. Uh, tell me a bit about, about grocery store. I mean, gross, big grocery store chains are getting it in the chin a little bit uh, over the high costs, certainly with the kinds of profits they've been showing. Um, what, what's your what's your take on that? Is Because we're, we're, we're going to be talking about this more, I gather, because food prices are going to stay high. Yeah, there's been a lot of attention paid to the the record profits from the grocery stores. And we have a situation in Canada where we have three major grocery chains that sell pretty much most of the food that we eat. They have taken a, a lot of attention from, from various politicians, and there's currently a parliamentary inquiry into uh, food prices and, to some extent, the, the profits of, of food uh, grocery stores. It, it, it's hard to say that they're actually profiting uh, from these massive times, they are making more money, uh, but gross profit margins are somewhat the same. If you look into the the spreadsheets of the grocery stores, of which Loblaws One is a recent uh, release, uh, you know that they've made a lot more money from their food division, but that includes stores such as Shoppers Drug Mart, and where they've made significant profits from products like cosmetics, perfumes, uh, other sort of allied healthcare items. That's really bumped the profits as well. So it's actually hard to to judge. Well, there's no real current evidence to say that there's there's really abuse that's going on by uh, grocers. 
when we look at the way the system has functioned um post sort of post the the heaviest days of covid do you sense that there's there's um a desire in this country to have some sort of shift in the way groceries are sold uh, only because we have so much concentration of ownership and we see these prices rise do you see that happening yeah it's a tough one i i don't really see a major change in the way that we purchase food. I mean, one of the great things about the grocery stores is that you can go to one place and get everything that you need from your house. Now, would that be food, other household items, toilet paper, cleaning items, whatever it may be. Uh, And if you look back, you know, 50, 60 years ago when, you know, there was the corner store or the high street type store where you could go and, you know, buy it, go go to a butcher or go to a a grocer for your produce. Uh, We don't really have a lot of those anymore. Uh, people are busier. They want a one-stop shop, and that plays into the grocer's business. Um, and when you look at the the economics of a grocery store, we were talking about an enterprise that that you know setting up one grocery store is you know costing tens of millions of dollars in investment, and that that's prohibitive for many new startup grocery stores uh, because they just don't have the funds to be able to do that type of enterprise and then the logistics to provide that food. So it's a difficult situation. Uh, I think we're we're sort of stuck with this level of concentration, but typically over time that has led to lower food prices uh, for most Canadians, just the spike that we've seen recently. And is is the online sort of ready-made meal business having any dent in that at all? Is that is that become more affordable now that we should be looking to waste less and sort of make things according to recipe? Yeah, we've seen the meal kit providers get a lot of attention during the pandemic that we've seen their use increase. They are a very costly business model. And a lot of the meal kit providers like the HelloFresh and the Good Food, they're, they're, they're struggling to be able to provide a, enough revenue because it's a very expensive business that requires a lot of logistics, a lot of handling of product, of sorting of orders. And, and the, those things are quite costly. So they are there, that they're struggling a bit, uh, and we'll see how the meal kit providers pan out in the future. Simon Samoji, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. We're talking about, um, well, it's not really nutritional advice, is it? I, I don't even really know when exactly this became common, but the idea that you should drink eight glasses of water a day, the eight times eight theory has been around for quite a while. I've heard of people mention it quite often. Um, this whole idea of needing to hydrate more became very popular, did it not? Like you, it used to be a long time ago that people would carry around, you know, plastic bottles of water. Before that, there were water fountains when I was growing up. Then there were, then it became bottles of water, which seemed like a bad idea, um, a waste, certainly. And then it was sort of these giant urns of water. I mean, people these days, sometimes you see people carrying around what look like buckets essentially the something the side it looks like you could carry two liters of water in this thing now no one needs that much water right i mean you, you need to hydrate it's important but you can hydrate in many different we hydrate in different ways um but this idea that you have to carry around sort of like you know uh a four liter bottle of water as you're walking around with a cap on top you know it's all very trendy which is fine listen it doesn't hurt anyone you can drink as much water as you want but how much water do you need <laughs> better yet um so researchers did this really massive study. They looked at water intakes and patterns of more than 5,000 people across 26 countries and found out that about how much water our bodies actually need depends a lot. Like it depends on a lot of stuff, including environment, health, and age. 
And unfortunately, and this is always the case, according to the study, those with the least ability to grab a glass of water on a whim may be the ones who actually need it the most. So with more on this now and why this eight times eight isn't necessarily necessary is Dale Scheller. He's the director in the Isotope Ratio Corps at the Biotech Center and Nutritional Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He also was one of the authors of this report. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. I think this whole eight glasses a day has kind of seeped into public consciousness. Do you have an idea of where it came from? Uh, yes, we did track it a couple of years ago. It was what I'll describe as a misinterpretation of the data. Right. They looked at total water turnover in individuals and forgot that it uh, didn't all come from drinking water. You get about 20, 30% of your water intake from the food that you eat. In addition, there's some turnover from what's called metabolic water. When you're burning fats and carbohydrates, you make a little bit of water. They assumed that eight glasses of water had to all come from drinking water from a glass. From a glass. <laughs> from a glass. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, that happens a lot, doesn't it? The data is misinterpreted yes. and then turned around oh, yeah. into sort of these easy, bite-sized uh, ways exactly. to make your life better. That's exactly it. <laughs> so you set out to to figure out just how, I mean, this is clearly one size does not fit all, but you went out to, to do, to find more, more, more about this. Uh, what did you, what did you look for? What did you find in your research? Well, what this was, was a, a marvelous collection of data. We use something called doubly labeled water. It's a stable isotope technique to measure how many calories a person burns. And there are uh, half a dozen major laboratories in the world that have done this in multiple studies in countries from Europe, Africa, the United States, Japan. And we said, let's combine our data. And that'll enable us to come to bigger conclusions than each of us working alone. <clears throat> and one of the offshoots of this double-enabled water technique is it provides a objective measure of water intake, total turnover from all the water that you drink and eat and make yourself. So we're able to calculate in 5,000, 6,000 individuals from many countries across the world how many grams of water they were consuming on average over a day. So I gather what you found is yeah. that, of course, there is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to water consumption. It really depends on a whole the myriad of factors, right? So what did that look like? Well... It looked like a confusing mess, but the first author, Yosuke Yamada, at the uh, Institute of Health and Nutrition in Japan, put this together and said, well, temperature probably has something to do with it. When it's hot, you sweat and need more water. So he looked at temperature effects across the population, effects of age, because of body size have a huge effect. So he's able to pick apart how much the variability could be explained from temperature the country that you're in, social customs and similar things like that, which come from your environment, as well as body size from infants that were weeks old to elderly who were over 90 and pick that apart and predict how much of the variability could be explained by each of those, each of those individual characteristics. And I gather that from within that too, I mean, Clearly, people who are sweating a lot, for instance, I think we all recognize this from our own experience in life, that if you're working a job that involves a lot of physical activity, you're going to need to consume more water. You're burning yes. 
more. Uh, but you also found that even within those parameters, there are differences too, depending on physiology and so on. So it's really, as you mentioned, it really is a bit of a mess. Yeah. And and also a lot of variability in just how much a person drinks to meet and exceed their required water intake because they like it. It tastes good. It's refreshing. Or they're concerned. They're trying to meet that eight times eight glasses of, of water per day. So with all that in mind, uh, how many glasses of water do we need? Or how do you figure, can you figure that out for yourself? I suppose drink when you're thirsty. Well, from our data, that does not measure the need. That measures the average intake, right. which obviously exceeds the need because the people are not dying of terrible thirst or something. So it's an overestimate of the requirement, but it's a true estimate of your average daily intake in a population, a large population, which is very valuable right now because, I mean, we, we have some serious problems here in the U.S. in the last year, Jackson, Mississippi, where the municipal water supply went out, southern Florida during the hurricane, and they had to truck water into those cities for people to survive until the water supply could be provided. This provides a scientific basis for how much people normally drink, uh, including athletes, including sedentary individuals. You can come up with a number and say, oh, we need this many truckloads of water down there to enable the people to survive this dramatic event. Yeah, this is about a lot more than just disproving uh, the eight the eight glasses of water a day right. theory. This is really about creating a map whereby one understands how much water is needed. And I'm you're right, in, a, in the case of emergency or in the case of countries where there is water shortages, it gives us a much better understanding of just how much water people really need. Exactly. So the, the eight glasses of water a day, I mean, we've seen this. <laughs> Clearly, it's not it's not needed. But is it harmful or just unnecessary? It's unnecessary. It may be a little bit useful in terms of washing out the waste from the body. It may help produce more urine so you wash out a little more waste. But you have to meet that basic need for survival. And beyond that, it may, it may, may make you feel a little more less thirsty, a little better. May, as I said, wash out the waste products from your body. Not eight. Not eight. I mean, this is common, though, right? I mean, you, you're obviously well versed in nutritional sciences. The this idea that there are these sort of simple, fa- fa- these simple answers or bite sized answers to these elaborate questions of what the body needs are, are pretty prevalent, aren't they? I mean, we're we're attracted to them. I mean, I've been I've been guilty of saying the same sort of things for different nutrients, but yes. You tend to oversimplify. The um, where do you go with this research now? I mean, clearly, it's something that people should know. I mean, you pointed out, made a perfect example in in times of emergency when communities are faced with water shortages, or you need to know how much water the community needs, right? And then this way, you yes. you found a way to do that. Uh, we're not looking into continuing it. Some special interest. We're certainly interested in growing our database, which is largely to learn more about energy requirements, but this useful information about water requirements in unusual places in the world, places that are closer to very dry deserts or where there's a limited supply of water, there's certainly room to expand that database and learn more about specific environments. 
it strikes me now that, of course, uh, I asked you about. Uh, I, I set off to to talk about this eight glasses a day, eight glasses of water a day myth, so to speak. And your research is about much more than that. But here we are talking about it again: eight glasses yeah. a day. Right. It, it's well, just as you pointed out. I mean, it's so prevalent, uh, and some people really force the water. There was a period, actually, about ten years ago, when the overemphasized overemphasis on water turnover actually led to some problems in marathon running. People were stopping to drink so much water that they'd wash the sodium out of their blood a little bit and running into uh, low sodium levels. When someone overdoes it, it can be a problem. Well, Dale Scheller, thank you so much for uh, clearing this up. (laughs) Much appreciated. Happy for the opportunity and, and glad to help. Well, going back to that era, to the 80s, tomorrow, December the 6th, of course, is the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. It has been since 1991. Uh, It will mark 33 years tomorrow, 33 years since a lone gunman killed 14 women at the École Polytechnique Engineering School in Montreal in what has become known as the Montreal Massacre. Uh, I was a college student in 1989. My trip from home to school went right past the Polytechnique, which is actually up a very long drive. Uh, the University of Montreal sits on top of a bit of a mountain. So uh, you couldn't see what was going on, but we all knew something had happened. And it was back at the time where there was no social media, obviously. There was no internet even, um, at least not one that you could use readily. So we, no one really knew what was happening. It was only as it, as it became clear just how horrific what had gone on there that it sort of sank in, um, just how impossibly tragic and awful that day had been. Um, that day was going to con- continue to be. Uh, most of Mark Lepin's victims were engineering students, of course. He claimed to be motivated by his hatred of feminists, and he targeted female students specifically. Um, there were a lot of incredible stories. I mean, these were all really bright women with incredible futures ahead of them, all engineers at a time where there weren't that many women in engineering. One of them was a 23-year-old mechanical engineering student named Annie St. Arnaud. She was attending her last class. Imagine that, her last class before she was scheduled to graduate and had a job interview the next day with what was then known as Alcan. She also thought she might join her brother, who was a missionary working in Zaire at the time, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And Serge St. Arnaud, that brother, who's also a member of the gun control group Police Souvien, joins me now from Montreal. Mr. St. Arnaud, thank you for your time. Thank you. I guess this, I mean, I was in Montreal 33 years ago, um, coming home from Cégep, actually the day of, and I used to live right near the University of Montreal, so the bus went past. I remember that day very, very well. You were far away that day, weren't you? What are your memories of of December 6th, 1989? Well, I was in Zaire at that time. I was a missionary, and it was my first uh, appointment as a missionary, and I was uh, very far in the bush, and then I was listening. Uh, and then I heard about uh, that event uh, on the radio, explaining that something happened at the Polytechnic. And then I remembered, and I, I said to myself, well, my sister is there. But uh, it took about two weeks before I could get any news from home, because at that time we didn't have internet or any other means of communication. Mm-hmm. I was not feeling so good. Uh, then after two weeks, as I said, I heard I got news, and it took me two more weeks before being able to come back home to be with my family at that time. 
I know that uh, just by reading her background, NE was was close to graduating, and I guess one of her potentials was to go into engineering and work at Alcan. Another was to join you, right? Was to join the kind of work you were doing. Yes, it's true. That was her dream. Uh, I don't I don't know how far we could have been to working together because I was really far in the bush at that time. But that was her dream to find ways to help people uh, where I was. I don't know. I mean, it's for me still a mystery, but for sure she was willing to contribute to my ministry in a, in a when we're looking at just the description, it's so hard to tell what someone was like just from what they did. But but clearly, you know, for for a woman of her generation, she was very accomplished and very smart, obviously. Yes, she was. Uh, uh, may I remember you that uh, she was born in 1966, mm-hmm. and then she was 23 when she was uh, murdered. Mm-hmm. But as, as you mentioned, she was a very talented uh, girl. Uh, she was very good at school, and she wrote uh, poetry published uh, actually uh, a small booklet on her poetry in uh, 2011. But at that time, when she was uh, at secondary school, she used to play music. She was playing traverse flute. Right. And she she wrote a play about the degradation of ecology. And then she was playing the main character uh, of that play. She was good in science. Uh, and I remember she was insisted on understanding mathematical formulas instead of learning by heart. Well, she was a very clever and beautiful lady. What is the impact on a family like yours? I know that she was the youngest, right? The first girl? Uh, um, she was the... Yeah, well, I am the elderly uh, you're the boy. I, I have a brother. He's, he's about five years longer, younger than me. Then came my sister five years after. And... She is the first girl because of my older sister, she is only two years younger than Annie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was terrible, especially at this time of the year in December. People were recognizing us and asking us, oh, or telling us, oh, you are the mother of or the brother of. And it was very painful for many, many years. Uh, imagine it took us as a family about eight years to be able to pronounce her name among us. And it is my father who did so to, to show how deep the trauma was. Uh, and, I mean, it's very difficult to explain uh, because, as I mentioned, it's not simply a family event. It, it was a national event. It was. Uh, that, that's eight years. Eight years. Yeah. Couldn't say her name. I cannot explain why it took us so long just to to pronounce her name. I mean, Annie. Now today we we do we we mention her all the time. But uh, I, I remember, yes, my mother told me recently. Imagine uh, she was traveling with my father from home. It is about three hundred kilometers from Montreal, so it, it took them maybe three hours at least to make the the distance. Mother told me that all the way in for three hours they didn't say a word to each other because they expected the, the worst. So they knew that something went wrong, but they couldn't talk about that before arriving in Montreal. And then here, my brother Sylvain uh, was the one to try to to understand what happened and, and moving from hospital to hospital to see if she was still alive or not. But uh, no, surely. And then my, my sister, oh, my younger sister, 
she told me also recently that um, she she she's still very angry by the fact that she's not able to share with her sister the beautiful life and family she has now with children and grandchildren and now she is a grandmother uh, and then I understood that the impact on my sister uh, her name is Lucy uh, she is probably more than than for me I suppose because she was so close to to her and the sister Sergeant over all those years I gather you've still been very close you, you've spoken to other families I imagine the impact has been the same on all of them well not every in every family because we lost track to some of them very early mm-hmm. but uh, we were a group of six seven families members and we decided to do something and this is how the project of police uh, came along and all other things too uh to to say something, to, to do something about violence against women. How has that helped? I mean, it's been a campaign now that's been going on for decades, and it feels like it's it's known quite a bit of success, but it must have taken some determination to continue year in, year out. Yes, uh, it's true. And uh, the blow in that process was when the uh, government of Harper decided to uh, erase the uh, gun uh, the long gun registry. Yeah. Yes, that's mm-hmm. right. So that was very, very tough for us. Uh, but then we decided to move on and fight for the more respect for women and to to, to move on with more, a better gun control uh, laws for, for Canada because we believe through that we can save lives of many people. When you look at the progress that's been made over three decades, do you feel like do you feel like there's success you can point to, that there is something that has been done in the memory of, of your sister and the 13 others that is worthy um, that is worthy of their names? Uh, well, I, th- I think so. Um, I cannot speak about all, on behalf of all families, but if I look at mine, uh, where I come from, it's a small town north of Trois-Rivières. It's called Latsuc. And then there is a library, and they decided to name the library on the name of my sister. Mm-hmm. And in other places, in for other families, uh, things similar to that happen here and there. What is important is to remember the tragedy, for sure, but also the need to engage ourselves for a better world. This is the message my mother from the very start uh, wanted to, to to do. And she was uh, repeating all the time uh, the need to organize our society or to, to do something in order to prevent any kind of uh, tragedy like that one. Yeah, I guess that is, a, I think you once said that, that the legacy of that day had, had sort of disfigured the face of humanity, which is a very strong yeah. way of putting it. Yes, it's about the image. I remember that, yes. You know, we are sacred people. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is something sacred in, in each one of us. And then when you do something wrong to someone, somewhere you attack the very core of the dignity of the person. And as a believer, I, I do believe that we are all children of God. And so by doing wrong to each one of us, uh, somewhere we are 
doing wrong to God himself somehow. So this is my understanding of the spiritual understanding of human life. I would imagine that your faith, um, your family's faith, did help you, though. Yes, very much so. Uh, myself, I am a Catholic priest, and then my family members are very dedicated to and committed to their beliefs. What should the rest of us tomorrow, when December 6th comes along, 33 years tomorrow, it feels like time has gone by so fast. How, sh- how would you like the rest of us to remember Annie tomorrow? She was a wonderful person, and um, I miss her a lot, even now. 30 years later, I'm still missing her. I was, I was very close to her, though I was not always at home because I was quite for a long time in Africa. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel sad somehow. And also I feel, you know, we are sacred people mm-hmm. who can make a change in society for a better world. Yeah, that's helped. That's helped. I think, I hope so. And it's helped you. It's helped the family. Yes, I think so. that's for sure. Because all of us, we have been committed to one in one way or another to uh, to speak about that. I wrote myself uh, quite a few articles for newspapers. Uh, my sister did as well. My mother did that as well in her own way. So this is very important for us to speak about her because she's she's still with us somehow. And if you're ever in Letsuk, you'll notice the library is called the Annie Sitano. Yeah. Library as well. Um, Serge Cetardo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, we've been mentioning in the last half hour, we were talking to Serge Saint-Arnaud, the brother of Annie Saint-Arnaud, who was one of the 14 women killed on December 6, 1989 at the École Polytechnique. Tomorrow marks 33 years since that day. Uh, there will be ceremonies and Words of remembrance right across the country, we know, as there always is on the 6th. Now, one of the lasting legacies of that day uh, is that it helped usher in tougher gun laws in this country. Certainly, families of the survivors, the survivors and families of the victims um, bonded together to try to fight for tougher gun rules in this country that a majority of Canadians support, right? But the current government, again, with what appears to be significant public support, is in the process of overhauling our existing gun control policies under something called Bill C-21. Now, there's been some controversies around it, and here's why. Uh, And we'll get someone who knows a lot about this to weigh in on it in just a second. But it includes a freeze on the sale or transfer or transfer of all handguns, more money for border enforcement, which is needed, considering researchers say, and police say, that the lion's share of handguns being used to commit crimes in this country now are being smuggled in from the U.S., which new Canadian laws will have little impact on. When it comes to gang crime, where a lot of the rise in gun violence is being seen, uh, we spoke to one former Toronto gang member a few weeks ago who now guides those trying to get out of that life uh, about this very issue of handguns. Here's what he had to say. I've never actually seen anyone actively go out and seek a legally sourced firearm in order to kill someone. It's just, it just doesn't make sense. Daryl Wilson speaking to us from Toronto a few weeks ago. Now uh, the government has introduced last minute amendments to C-21 that introduces new language around the definition of what is an assault style weapon. And this has created a lot of controversy because gun control advocates say they've been waiting for decades for this kind of ban. 
Uh, but opponents say now that the proposed definition would bar some firearms used for hunting. And the government's tried very hard to not do that. But, it, you know, with this definition, we just don't know yet. Today, the Prime Minister seemed to be shifting his tone a little bit on this legislation being studied by members of Parliament. At a news conference in Ontario, Trudeau said that he's listening to concerns that some of the firearms his government is looking to ban are really, in fact, used more for hunting. And that's what we're listening to feedback on now to make sure that we're not capturing uh, weapons that are uh, primarily hunting weapons. But we all know that we need to make sure that guns that are designed to kill the largest number of people as quickly as possible have no place in Canada. And I suspect they already don't. I mean, that's part of the issue here is that, um, you know, that there's very different views on this, depending on where you live, depending on what part of the country you're living in many times. Uh, you know, a lot of kids who, like myself who grew up in cities don't have a lot of contact with firearms. They just don't. Um, so I think it's important in these cases that what we're looking for here is reasonable policy that protects people. Of course, we don't want semi-automatic, you know, we don't want uh, assault-style weapons on the streets or people using them to commit mass murders. Clearly, that's what we don't want. What we also don't want is to turn the notion of gun control into a very divisive political issue like so many things become these days. We certainly don't want to see what we see in the States, which is just sort of this, you know, uh, Second Amendment madness, this the, the repeats of these horrific tragedies. We certainly don't want to see that. So where is the middle ground here? And in honor of, of the 14 women who died at Polytechnic 33 years after those deaths, how do we continue to honor their deaths with gun control that makes sense, gun control that is effective? Well, to help us with that is Noah Schwartz. He's an assistant professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley. He's also author of On Target, Gun Culture, Storytelling, and the NRA, and a researcher who spent the better part of the last five years researching gun policy and gun culture in this country and in the U.S., and he joins us now. Thank you for your time. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You know, we're, we're approaching the 33rd anniversary of December the 6th, 1989. I remember that day. I was in Montreal on that day. How much has gun policy changed since then uh, in terms of tightening up on gun, on gun, you know, sort of introducing new gun restrictions and so forth? Yeah, no, that's a, a fantastic question. Um, so I think to answer that question, we actually have to go back a little bit further. So uh, most Canadians don't actually realize that until the 1970s, long guns especially were, were pretty much unregulated in Canada. There was no licensing like we have today, uh, nothing like that. Um, there were registration of handguns. But other than that, um, you could buy you know, a long gun at the hardware store. This started to change in the 1970s uh, with Bill C-51, and this introduced sort of a background check uh, system. You had to go to a police station, apply for what was called a firearms acquisition certificate, um, and with a one-time background check, you could get that. The problem was the rejection rate for that was quite low, uh, so it wasn't necessarily the best process uh, for vetting who should be a firearms owner and who shouldn't. After the Ecole Polytechnique attack, um, there was a considerable amount of attention placed on this policy area, and the advocacy work done by survivors uh, of the massacre was instrumental in really making the push for stricter gun control in Canada. And so you have new legislation brought in that really strengthens Canada's gun control system a few years later in 1991. So there we have the system that was in place sort of before the Trudeau government came in, uh, where you have licensing, uh, gun owners have to take a one to two day course. 
apply for a license. There's a 28-day waiting period. They have to interview uh, your spouse or intimate partner. Or if, you know, in the event of a breakup, you have to provide the contact information for your ex-partner. It's a, a very rigorous system of screening that was put into place after this to try to prevent something like this uh, from happening again. It's remarkable to think, I mean, when one sees the sort of number of mass shootings in the U.S. and so on, to think back to just the impact that that one day had on the way we viewed guns in this country, for the most part. Yeah, a lot of that has to do with Canada's political institutions. Um, It's a lot easier to make change in the Canadian political system. Obviously, in the American political system, you have uh, the division of powers in government. You have the the Senate and and the House uh, being potentially under the control of different uh, different parties. There's a lot more points at which legislation can get tossed out or stalled in the U.S. system. Uh, in the Canadian system, we have less of those barriers, so it's sort of easier to, to react to public opinion. And so for many, many years following the early 90s, Canada had fairly strict gun Gun, I mean, we did have, it, was, it often came under criticism, but we, we did have fairly strict and fairly comprehensive gun policy in place. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we have the the big ticket items that that the literature shows are really important for preventing gun violence. So the first thing is licensing, right? At the end of the day, it's an individual who's going to misuse firearms that's going to result in a crime. Uh, So when you can screen individuals before they're able to purchase firearms, and the Canadian system has what's called continuous eligibility screening, states in the United States that have background checks. You might be able to pass a background check once, but then you go out and commit a number of crimes and the police don't necessarily have a connection between you and that gun. In Canada, uh, firearms owners are in the system. So, you know, if a firearms owner commits a crime, even if it's unrelated to gun crime, the RCMP know where they live, they know where their guns are, and they can come and get them. They're also uh, able to screen people for people with violent histories, for example. We know uh, mass shooters, usually going on a violent rampage is not someone's first step uh, on the path to criminality. People usually don't just sort of snap overnight. There's often a long criminal history uh, that precedes that. And, and the Canadian system is good for sort of screening those people out. If we move fast forward a bit then to Bill C-21, which was sort of built on a lot of what was introduced back in the 1990s, how effective a policy is it when it comes to gun control? Because it felt like we had fairly effective policy in place. A lot of the same groups that you were talking about earlier, certainly the survivors groups from uh, the École Polytechnique, were certainly looking for even tougher laws, and they're supportive of Bill C-21. But just how far, where is it in terms of policy, how much better does it make what was already on the books? So I think, like with any policy, uh, there are elements of C-21 that are useful, especially those that increase funding to uh, borders. Because right. uh, what we see from the evidence is that, is that the majority, the overwhelming majority of the guns being used in crimes in Canada um, are being smuggled from the United States through fairly sophisticated networks of gun smuggling, often tied to organized crime. If you look at the the rise in gun crime that we're seeing uh, in the past couple of years, it's largely driven by gang-related crime in Canada's big cities. These are individuals that wouldn't be eligible usually to apply for a firearms license because of their criminal history. So they have to sort of go around the system to try to get firearms, right? Firearms are useful tools for gangsters. They allow them to do things like protect their turf, settle scores and things like this. So if you can't get something legally, you're going to look to the black market. And unfortunately, because of Canada's geopolitical position, we're not in the position that Australia and the UK are in, um, where we can sort of hermetically seal our border. So I think strengthening the border is a good thing. It's going to help hopefully stop a little bit of that flow. The parts of C21 uh, that I I like less uh, are things like the handgun ban. Um, Handguns are already very tightly restricted under those 1990 laws. If you want to be a handgun owner in Canada, not only do you have to go through the normal 
Canadian firearm safety course, but you have to go through the restricted firearm safety course. It's another class, another exam, uh, another practical test. You have to uh, be a member of a, a gun club, which can cost up to 400 bucks a year in some cities. And, and you have uh, much more stringent storage requirements involved uh, with owning a handgun and transportation requirements. If you're driving to the range, for example, you have what's called an authorization to transport. You can't stop at Tim's on the way to grab a cup of coffee. You have to go directly to the range using the most direct route. Yeah. I've even, uh, in my interviews, I met gun owners who had a professional cartographer chart out that route so that they would be able to prove if they were ever charged in court that that was the most direct route. So there's a really stringent system in, in place and it, it made sure that people weren't owning handguns just to leave it in your, you know, in your bedside table, which is the case in the United States. If you're owning it, you're a serious sports shooter. You're involved in the shooting sports. So, so in, in other words, bringing in a ban was probably somewhat unnecessary. If, if most of the handguns out there that are being used to commit crimes are illegally be, being smuggled in illegally from the U.S., and the vast majority of handguns owned by owners, responsible owners in this country, are already under severe restriction, then banning them outright feels more political than it does policy to some extent. And, and I think if, if we're thinking about uh, the incentives that politicians have for legislation, right, politicians always have incentives to, do, uh, to put into place very visible policies. Right. Uh, because that's what's going to win them the votes. That's what's going to increase their donations. And most Canadians don't know about the system that's in place. Uh, most Canadians don't know about what gun control looks like in Canada. What we do see is the United States. And we see the, the sort of rampant gun violence happening down there. And I think most people are, are, are really worried about public safety. So if, if you don't know about what the system that's in place, it's very easy to kind of suggest to people that this is going to make you safer. I think uh, the Minister of Public Safety, Marco Mendicino, said we are going to eradicate gun violence in Canada. And I'm sitting here as someone who spent a lot of time studying this policy and thinking, you, you can't seriously make that promise. I mean, even countries like the United Kingdom and Australia still have gun violence and they're islands or continents that can seal themselves off much more effectively than we can. I live here in Abbotsford. I'm three kilometers from the U.S. border, and it's largely farmers' fields, right? And, and you know, CBSA does their best to keep the border safe, but but there's a lot of a lot of points uh, where things can flow across. Noah Schwartz is with us this half hour. He's an assistant professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley, author of On Target. Uh, we've been talking about gun control in Canada. We're coming up to the 33rd anniversary of the Polytechnic Massacre on uh, Tuesday, December the 6th, tomorrow. Um, Noah, you've spent, this has been a bit of an odd one because all of a sudden Bill C-21 was kind of making its way through the usual process in Parliament. And then all of a sudden we saw some new categories uh, added and it seemed to very much get, A, catch people off guard and B, very much become a kind of, not different, but a, a kind of much messier piece of legislation than it had been. What's going on? Yeah, so for a long time, the government has been struggling with something, uh, which is uh, defining an assault weapon. Um, this sort of points to the idea that that they settled on the term assault style weapon, which kind of hints that the fact that this is sort of more framing technique uh, than objective category. And this was one of the major criticisms of, for example, their 2020 assault style weapon ban. They were banning certain firearms that were functionally equivalent to other firearms that were still legal. It's just that these were sort of more famous. They'd maybe been used in an incident, something like this. So it would catch public attention. So I think they were trying, what they were trying to do is sort of reconcile those differences by then just saying, okay, we'll come up with this evergreen definition, um, which is any semi-automatic firearm capable of accepting a, a removable magazine, which is most semi-automatic firearms. The danger for them is that is that they did something, I think, with this change that they've been very careful not to do. 
and that's they've been very surgical about targeting certain elements of the the gun community um, and leaving the hunting community untouched. And this is due to the blowback against the long gun registry, because the long gun registry really activated that community of hunters in Canada. And there was a lot of blowback against that policy. So since then, they've been really careful to maybe target sports shooters who are a smaller group in Canada, but leave hunting uh, alone for the most part. I think the problem with expanding this definition is that now we're getting into some of those firearms. I mean, even the original ban touched on certain hunting firearms. Um, but I think this uh, amendment touches now on a much larger group of hunting firearms, including, for example, the SKS, which is a rifle that's very commonly used. It's very um, cheap, easily available, um, and especially for sort of maybe low-income hunters, subsistence, subsistence hunters. I know um, there's a lot of uh, evidence that, that it's uh, very popular with Indigenous hunters, for example, uh, in northern, or hunters in northern communities. So when you look at this, then they've they've cast a very wide net. I mean, I feel like the the, the blowback has been very very quick. Um, what happens now? Do you think? I mean, this, is this is this just a bad, an overly broad definition that leaves too much room for interpretation? I think we're in sort of uncharted waters. Uh, for the past five years that I've been researching this issue, the Liberals have very much been in control of the narrative. And I think that they're slowly losing control of the narrative with this amendment. Um, you saw Carrie Price from the Montreal mm -hmm. Canadiens speaking out against the ban. And you haven't seen uh, any other celebrities really get involved in this issue in Canada, certainly not on, on the side of the pro-gun coalition. The Liberals are starting to realize that they may have, have reached a bit too far and ended up activating that community that they'd been hoping to avoid activating. And I think anyone else looking at this thinks, well, you know, gun control policy is all fine and dandy if it creates a safer environment, right? That's what we're, the, the end goal here is safer communities, right? And I'm just wondering sometimes when you look at, at, um, at Bill C-21 and especially now, whether it, whether it does, tries to do too much and, and it, it tries to be everything to everyone, uh, over a, a subject that, as you well know, as you know better than anybody really is incredibly complex. The end goal should always be public safety. And that's something that I've, I've found very frustrating watching the politics of it all, because obviously, you know, policy should cre be created best based on the best available evidence. Um, but policymakers are, are in an environment where they're responding to rewards, um, which are political rewards, whether that be the support of certain communities things like this, activating others. So I, I think a lot of the legislation that we've seen, because Canada already had such a strong system in place, um, has been kind of tinkering in a way that will get attention, rather than necessarily focusing on things that could make us safer. I think if we wanted to invest money to make communities safer, um, if we wanted to look at, at, for example, the communities where gun violence is happening, right? What can we do to support those communities? Why has there been a rise in uh, gang violence, especially after the COVID-19 pandemic? And the problems we've been having with inflation, for example, right? How does poverty, how does inequality drive this crime? And what can we do to tackle that? What's the link between the opioid crisis and crime? And how can we provide support for people struggling with addiction? These are all, all the really complex questions. And, and there aren't the same political rewards, unfortunately, for tackling them. It's, it's, much, it's much easier to say, look, we're banning these guns. We're doing something visible. Um, it's, it's like I say, it's the liberals equivalent to tough on crime uh, legislation in, on the right. Very, very visible, not a huge amount of evidence to, to substantiate it. Yeah, and often the weapon is just one part of a very large problem. Noah Schwartz, as always, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on.